Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. However, not all interviews feature public company management teams. Every once in a while, I get the chance to interview industry experts, and this is one of those interviews. Jim heads up the energy, environmental, and tax practices at Capital Alpha. And when I was on the buy side, Jim was always one of the guys that I always look forward to meeting with when he came through town. He's an expert when it comes to the energy and power sectors. Jim's areas of expertise include electric power, U.S. energy production, alternative energy, and energy infrastructure. And because all those fields are highly impacted by U.S. government regulations and and whatever policy is coming out of whichever administration is in office, Jim was the guy to talk to if you had any questions or concerns related to, well, regulations and policy. One of the things that I really liked about talking to Jim is the fact that he's an encyclopedia of information, especially as it pertains to political events or decisions that impact the industry. Not only is he a really interesting guy to talk to, but he's also a really nice guy, and I'm honored to have him on the podcast. During this interview, you'll have the opportunity to hear Jim talk about the Clean Power Plan and Trump's proposed affordable clean energy rule. You'll also have the opportunity to learn more about the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, as it's commonly known. Jim provides a really good overview and explanation of what the organization does and the broader impacts that decisions that come out of the FERC have on the energy industry. And finally, you'll also have the opportunity to hear Jim talk about Colorado's Initiative 97 and what that could mean for oil and gas drilling in the state of Colorado. It's actually a really fascinating subject. Of course, I'm biased because I live in Colorado, and I guess I'm a little bit concerned about what the implications are from Initiative 97 if Colorado voters decide to adopt the 2,500-foot setback rule, which I should note since recording the interview with Jim, News recently came out that Initiative 97 does have enough validated signatures to be part of the midterm ballot in Colorado. So this is something that Colorado will be voting on in November of this year. So without further ado, let's get to Jim Lucier from Capital Alpha. Thank you so very much for joining the IWTB podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thanks, Nate. It's a pleasure to be here. So... Could you first start out talking about your background? Yeah, I went to Princeton University in the middle 1980s as a double major in electrical engineering and Japanese, because at that point we thought that trade would be the most important topic in Washington for decades to come, and that perhaps the Japanese would also be ruling the world. Little did I realize that um, my classmate, fellow double E major, Jeff Bezos, would go on to be the richest man on the planet while I became a trade policy expert with not a lot to do in Washington. So I worked on all kinds of trade-related projects for years, uh, did work in tax as well, but finally found my way to Prudential Securities as a tax analyst there, looking at major corporate tax proposals, uh, looking at things that the Republican Congress was talking about doing, such as the Dick Army flat tax, but generally also working on international tax issues for Prudential. I worked on technology, too, during the dot-com era from the late 90s into the early uh, 2000s. I spent a lot of time following the Microsoft antitrust case, 
But more importantly, there was a lot of really cool stuff having to do with e-commerce and privacy and cybersecurity that was completely new to the, uh, the sell side as well as uh, analysts who were tracking uh, government technology. So I worked in government IT really through the, um, through the Y2K period into the early 2000s. And soon after that, the California power crisis occurred in 2000 and 2001. And given that the dot-com bust was already underway, the folks at Prudential gave me a choice. They said, Jim, you can do energy policy. You can do this electricity and natural gas stuff that's become such a big deal in California, or you can find another job. So I said, I'll be the energy analyst, please. <laughs> and that's what I've done for the last 18 years. Oh, uh, I didn't realize that you went to school with Jeff Bezos. I did, although I can't say I'm in the Bezos League right now. I haven't talked to him for perhaps so 15 or 20 years. Wow. Well, I, in our previous conversations, you'd never mentioned that. So that's, that's interesting. So, so what is Capital Alpha, the, the company that you work for now? Well, Capital Alpha in many ways is a spinoff from the Washington Research Shop of Prudential Securities. Prudential was a little unusual in that most Wall Street firms do their policy research out of New York. Prudential Securities and then Prudential Equity Group was the first to have a dedicated Washington office where we worked with our fundamental our research team. Initially, the major focus was on uh, healthcare which is a very, very important issue uh, because anything the government does with regard to healthcare, healthcare reimbursements, drug approvals, and the like has a big impact on the healthcare industry. So we gradually expanded, or I should say that Prudential gradually expanded from healthcare into other regulated industries, uh, financial services, for instance. My business partner, Chuck Gabriel, really my mentor, the guy who hired me for Prudential, has been a master of covering financial services because that's really the ultimate case of where you have regulation and money. Banks are nothing but rules and money. Insurance companies are nothing but rules and money. So if the rules change, the industry has to change too, and that's incredibly important for investors. Uh, likewise, uh, telecom can be extremely important, and uh, even the energy industry is an area where regulation means a lot to investors. So at Prudential Equity Group, we worked with the fundamental research teams at Prudential, looking at really the key issues with respect to the financial statements, uh, what really goes to the bottom line, so to speak. We didn't do Washington politics. We were working with guys doing models and trying to figure out what the pressure points on the models were. What if this regulation changes? What if that law passes? What if there's a big court decision? How does this flow through to the financial analyst's model? And how do you translate a policy decision into EPS? And it was a great education for us. Um, we did very well at Prudential for many years. I was there about 10 years myself. But when Prudential was getting ready to become a uh, publicly traded insurance company, they decided to focus on the insurance business and move out of the securities business. So we found ourselves uh, together as a group, but in search of a new home. And in that heady year of 2007, we talked to all kinds of firms. We talked to Lehman Brothers, we talked to Bear Stearns, we talked to lots of other organizations before we decided that uh, maybe we wanted to be independent. And that's sort of what we are today. We're independent, but we're doing a lot of the same work. 
which is that we uh, try to systematically look at what's happening in regulated industries especially, but for industry in general, and we try to ignore the circus of Washington politics and focus on the key regulatory and legal and judicial decisions that have a potential to impact your EPS. Yeah, so you say you will try to ignore the circus that is Washington politics, but in my past interactions with you, you've always had really great insight into what certain key decision makers are thinking in politics. And so I'm curious how much of like how much of an average day for Jim is talking to people who are involved in the decision-making process versus reading and writing and interacting with buy-side clients? Well, it's really changed a lot over the years. And one of the reasons for that change has been the internet and the disappearance of a quaint device formerly known as the telephone. (laughs) It used to be that in D.C. you could get just about anybody on the phone and you could talk policy stuff at uh, great length. But with the advent of email and messaging and person-to-person contact, it's gotten much, much harder. Um, You can't just uh, meet people on the street anymore or call random offices. You really do have to focus more on documents and other direct sources of information. We do have to pay attention to personalities, though. So it is absolutely very important to uh, go to public meetings, see how members of Congress behave in public, to watch the video, watch uh, the body language of President Trump in particular. You know, one of the biggest differences between the Trump administration and the Obama administration is that I have to have the TV on in my office all the time with Trump because you just never know what's going on. During the era, the wonderful heady era of no drama Obama, I never needed to watch TV because you just didn't have the same level of surprising developments. Uh, The circus was very, very different. So, you know, understanding personalities of key officials is important. Getting to uh, have some insight into their personality is also important. The point today is that all the clients have the internet. All the clients have C-SPAN. Everybody can see the same stuff. The real value added, I think, nowadays comes uh, more than ever before from reading the core documents, from filings, which may involve hundreds of entries in the docket, to a big regulatory decision that literally may be hundreds of pages long. And our specialty now is to be familiar with those proceedings as they develop, and then to be able to analyze them quickly, because even if something is 500 pages long, and believe me, they often are, there's usually just one news McNugget in there. There is the factoid. There is a key sentence or three or four paragraphs that you need to find fast and explain. And that's where I think our value added is because, um, you know, a lot of investors actually do read the filings. Some of them are very, very deep in the weeds on issues that are important to them. But today our value add is that we've uh, we've read the source material. We've read the fundamental documents. Uh, we've gone and done the stuff that you can't get from free newsletters or just watching videos or listening to the news. It's a special set of skills. Every single issue that we cover has to be covered in a different way. Some things are mostly documentary. Some things do involve developing industry contacts or contacts on the kill. International affairs 
which I spend much more of my time on, require a whole new set of think tanks and experts and global news sources. Most of my career, the news that mattered to me was in the Wall Street Journal, especially in the energy industry. But these days, um, it literally is the case that I got to spend a lot of time with the FT uh, because as the U.S. economy becomes an energy exporter interconnected with uh, global markets for crude oil and for LNG, and as trade, you know, the trade that I tried to get ready for 30 years ago, suddenly very important. So the sources and methods change, and part of the work of being a sell-side analyst in D.C., is to uh, develop new sources and methods consistent with what's available to uh, try to get the basic insight. And also, um, you know, it takes a certain amount of time historically. I grew up in Washington. Uh, I know there's a certain seasonal ebb and flow to the way things go. And I've just seen so many things happen over and over again that I think I have a better sense of the annual cycle in Washington, the cycle of presidential administrations, even the cycles of history, because uh, history may not repeat itself, but often it does rhyme. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. So, so you cover energy for Capital Alpha, and that includes power, oil and gas, midstream, refining. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to just kind of touch on a few of these different subsectors and just get your thoughts on some sure. of the regulatory proposals and changes that you're keeping your eye on. And I know that you have been one of the one of the best guys to talk to when it came to the clean power plan when I was at my former firm and the clean power plan was the topic du jour. But there's been something else that has been proposed, has there not? There is. The uh, Trump administration has uh, a proposed replacement for the clean power plan, which in many ways is a much more a watered-down version. Uh, President Obama had a program that was designed to move the United States to a lower carbon economy, and his plan involved three things. It involved uh, improving thermal efficiency of power plants, it involved using more natural gas, and above all, it uh, involved moving to zero emission sources. And behind all of this was a kind of a generation-shifting philosophy or what uh, some legal critics called outside the fence line regulation, where the EPA said that we are no longer going to focus on specific unit improvements at power plants. We're going to make every state think of its generation base as a system and require that that system as a whole uh, be made uh, more efficient. And what the Trump administration is proposing to do is to uh, drop two of those three building blocks. Natural gas is cheap. It's being used anyway. Renewables have got very compelling economic performance, so they didn't need the help. The Trump plan focuses entirely on uh, heat rate improvements in power plants, uh, not necessarily coal-fired power plants that could expand it to um, you know other simple cycle gas plants. But at the moment... Their clean power plan replacement is for heat rate improvements at coal-fired power plants only. Really? So it's just a policy change that would require coal-fired power plants to essentially improve their efficiency rating? That's right. And there's a lot of ways you could do that. You could do it with uh, improved heat tiles. You could improve the turbines in the power plants. You can improve the software. 
you don't normally think of power plants as running on software, but they, they do. And there are other technical aspects where perhaps you could squeeze another percent or two out of a, a legacy coal-fired power plant, which, you know, according to the laws of physics, is really the best that you can do with that power plant. And I would make an important distinction here. I don't think the uh, Trump administration is necessarily trying to um, undo the progress made with the clean power plant. I think what they want is what they would consider a more legally sustainable version. So what they're doing is really stepping back from this approach of outside the fence line regulation and uh, system-wide regulation of the state's entire generation base because they don't believe that is supported by the statute. And frankly, they've got a good legal case. And, you know, the single most important clean air regulator in this case is going to be the Supreme Court because with two more nominees to the Supreme Court, or I should say the likelihood of having two nominees, President Trump is going to be in a position to have a Supreme Court that is much more skeptical of regulation in general. And perhaps if I can make a prediction, one of the biggest things the street will be looking at in future years will be legal challenges to many forms of existing environmental regulation, which the Supreme Court had upheld under the Chevron rule, the Chevron deference, meaning that they defer to the uh, executive agency regulators as the experts in statutory interpretation. The clean power plan, frankly, was a reach to the extent that it took regulations designed to be implemented on a per power plant basis and uh, applied them statewide. And, you know, many other, I wouldn't necessarily characterize them as more aggressive, but let's say ambitious EPA regulations over the years were also upheld. If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, visit the website at thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes. So go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.